question that looms before us, one that I heard posed in a conference that I went to many years ago, and I'm going to share a few excerpts from some of the talks that were at that conference. But the question is this. Is this church? Is this church? Is what we do church? This may be the very question that heaven and earth have been asking about worship gatherings for thousands of years. Throughout redemptive history, certain religious groups have been gathering together and doing what religious groups do when they gather together. They sing songs, they pray prayers, sermons are preached, creeds are recited, and pleasantries are expressed on the way out. And often, most times, most people think, you know, after a religious gathering, wow, that was church, wasn't it? We got it right that time. I mean, it felt good today. We had the warm fuzzies. We nailed church. While at the very same time, those expressions are going on, there's an assessment possibly going on in heaven. And the question is being asked there, was that church? Was that really church? Is that what we had in mind when we conceived the notion of redemptive communities gathering all over planet Earth? And sometimes I wonder if maybe there's a little disparity between what the assessment is in heaven and what the assessment is by the people here as they're leaving the church service here on planet Earth. The Old Testament book of Amos had an example of this. There was a group of religious people who are gathering regularly. And they were singing, praying, and preaching. But all the time they were doing that, they were ignoring the poor who lived right around them. And they were oppressing the weak and the marginalized in their business dealings throughout the week. And they were tolerating all kinds of spiritual hypocrisy and there was pretending going on in their fellowship. And God spoke to that religious group of people one time. And here is exactly what he said. This is a direct quote from Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. God says, I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your hymns of praise. In other words, God is saying, fire the choir. And he's not just saying, turn down the volume. And I hear that quite a bit. He's saying, get rid of the music and get rid of the musicians. They are only noise in my ears. I will not listen to your music no matter how lovely it is. Wow. You can read it. Amos chapter 5. Now the worship gatherers had probably left their gathering saying, maybe they were saying things like, 9.8, 9.9. We had a great meeting that day. And here's heaven saying, unacceptable. We hate what you're doing down there. Close the doors to that gathering because everybody would be better off. Pretty strong words. Another time in the book of Malachi, the worship gatherers had what they thought was a great cost-saving, expense-cutting program. 
They had a brainstorm. God had told these people centuries before that whenever they were going to gather together to celebrate the cleansing of their sin, they were to go out into their herds and they were to pick the finest, the healthiest lamb in their herd. One that would bring the highest bid at the market were they to sell it there. And they were to take that lamb, the most precious one, the best one, and bring it to the worship meeting where it would be offered as a sacrifice to God, foreshadowing the death of Jesus Christ in the distant future. Remember that? Malachi. But some really smart and really cheap worship gatherers started thinking to themselves, well, why should we go out and get the best lambs if they're only going to get killed on the altar anyway, why choose the prize lamb in our herds if they're going to be given to God, only given to God? So they decided from that point on that they would find the worst lamb in their herds. They'd go out with great intentionality before they were to come, and then they would bring an offering, and they would find a sick or lame or blind lamb, maybe one that was so close to death that it was leaning on a fence post, just waiting to keel over, and they would say, that's the one. That's the one right there. This is perfect for sacrificing to God because it's worthless. It's worthless to us. See what was happening here in the Old Testament? Was that if it was cheap and it was convenient, it was okay. It was good enough for God. But if it was a little less convenient, if it was a little more costly, well, we might have to think about that one a little bit more. Well, after one of these worship gatherings where everyone's bringing these terrible sick lambs and feeling great about the service, patting themselves on the back, then God speaks to these folks. And God says some very troubling words. God says in Malachi chapter 1, Verses 8 to 14, he says, When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is. Says the Lord Almighty, go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you, but when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all, asks the Lord Almighty. I wish that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not at all pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will not accept your offerings, but my name will be honored by people of other nations from morning until night. All around the world, they will offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, do not think that I shall have no worshipers because I have not you. For from the east to the west, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, those very peoples whom ye look down upon as abominable. But, 
God continues, you dishonor my name with your actions by bringing contemptible food. You are saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say it's too hard for us to serve the Lord and you turn up your noses at his commands, says the Lord Almighty. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and mutilated, crippled and sick, presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? Asks the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name will be feared among the nations. God's words to the people of Malachi's day. You hear what God is saying here? He's saying, what you're doing down there is just not church. At least not the kind I'm interested in. He doesn't say tweak the service 5 or 10%. He says better you shut the whole place down than you continue on with the spirit and the attitude that you're manifesting in these meetings. These, folks, are really, really strong words. And they're words from God. How people think about church and how they practice church What's in their hearts and what's in their minds matters in heaven. It really matters. One more example. And this from the New Testament. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let me paraphrase the story for you. A group of religious leaders invite Jesus to come and be the guest speaker at the synagogue that day. Now, you'd think this would have been a great day in church, right? Jesus with the guest speaker. Well, it was sort of good, and it was sort of not so good because of what happened in the subtext behind all of it. The real reason the Pharisees invited Jesus to speak is that they were looking for a way to disgrace him publicly. They wanted him to say something controversial so they could pounce on and then discredit him because his Nielsen ratings were up and he was getting just too much of a following for their liking. So just before Jesus arrived at the synagogue, these Pharisees go out and they find a guy with a birth defect, a guy with a physical challenge. His particular challenge was that he had a badly shriveled arm, okay? an arm that had obviously embarrassed this guy his whole entire life and no doubt kept him from meaningful employment. And the Pharisees find this guy and they go, this is perfect. And they invite him to the service and they say, we're going to give you a front row seat. Sit right there. And this was their plan all along. They knew that Jesus had a heart to heal anyone with a physical affliction that would cross his path. Human suffering And misery affected the heart of Jesus Christ so much that almost every time he would deliver someone from some kind of physical infirmity. He would heal them. And the Pharisees had some extra-biblical laws, some addendums to the Scriptures, if you will, regarding how much work should be done on the Sabbath. So they invite Jesus to come on the Sabbath day ostensibly to be the guest speaker. 
They find this physically challenged guy with a withered arm. They sit him down right in the front row in front of Jesus, and they're betting on the fact that Jesus would notice him. He would have compassion on him and heal him on the Sabbath day. And then they could accuse him of doing too much work on the Sabbath, which would start a controversy, and that hopefully would bring him down. So the day comes, and the place is packed with Pharisees. Anticipation is in the air. There's a buzz in the room, right? This guy with the withered hand is escorted in. He's put in the front row, and Jesus gets up to speak. Man, it's electric in the room right then. And all of a sudden, Jesus notices the man with the withered hand, and he notices all the Pharisees leaning forward in their seats. And they're awaiting this moment. And Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. This whole thing's a sting. And it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that Jesus became very, very angry and grieved. And what does it say that he became grieved at? What is it? Their hardness of heart. The hardness of the hearts of the people in the worship gathering. It was like Jesus was saying, is this church? Is what's happening here right now pleasing in the sight of heaven? For starters, this physically challenged guy you went out and found, you drag him in here, you sit him down in the front row, you don't care about his infirmity at all. You don't care about his life. You don't care about his family. You don't care about his daily struggle. You don't care about his future. And you don't give a flying care about his eternity. You're just using him you, to try to put me in an embarrassing situation to discredit me. That's what's going on here. And this buzz that's in the room right now, the reason that everybody's so full of anticipation, vibrating like something's coming, it's not anticipation. It's not the buzz or the electricity of looking forward to the Father's presence in the room. It's not an eagerness to hear the truth that can be applied to human life. It's not a desperation to meet with God, to pray, to have Him touch your life with some transcendent way. No, this buzz is about whether or not I'm going to heal this guy, how much mileage you're going to get out of the controversy that will follow it if I do it. This, Jesus says, is not church. If this were church... There would be lots of people here with physical infirmities. They'd be brought here with the anticipation of a healing that would give God glory. There would be a lot of wayward people invited here by the core of believers hoping that people would find faith and find Christ in the gathering. There would be a love for God and a love for people and an eager anticipation of the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit that just might leave people changed after the service. That, Jesus said, would be church. But Jesus is saying, when he saw that room and he got so angry, this is a far cry from church. Now, just to finish that story, Jesus healed the man right in front of everybody. On the Sabbath day, he said, stretch out your hand, and the man did, and he healed him, 
And the minute he did, the Pharisees started shouting out protest that he had violated the work laws of the Sabbath day, and they ran out into the streets, and they started to discredit Jesus. And you know what the text says? The text says that, quote, they immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You want to know the interesting thing about that text? Is that the Pharisees hated the Herodians. They did not get along. They would join with them, their hated enemies, because their hatred for Jesus was even greater. Well, suffice it to say that that church service ended early that day. And it ended for all the wrong reasons it ended early. It was not a great day in church that day, really. Now, I use those examples to highlight the fact that sometimes we think what we think of as great church just might not be all that great in heaven's eyes. For all intents and purposes, it may look perfectly executed on the outside, God-honoring on the outside, but behind the scenes and inside people's hearts, it's a spiritual train wreck. Spiritual train wreck. And sometimes what doesn't seem all that impressive at all on the outside, sometimes what does not really capture our imagination thrills the heart of heaven because hearts are tender and hearts are broken and open to what the Spirit wants to do. And all of heaven is applauding, going, that's church. That's church. I commend you for that. I applaud you for that. You got it right. Keep going. There is likely no pertinent more pertinent question to ask ourselves in a series on the church than this. Is this great church? Is what we do really church? Is FBC really becoming a great church in heaven's eyes? Isn't that a pertinent question to ask? Oh, if we could only have the testimony of someone who sees it from heaven's side, an angel or a messenger, to give us some kind of feedback as to what Jesus thinks about the church down here, some kind of realistic assessment of what we might be doing right and where we desperately need to change when we're not doing things so right. Well, the good news in all this is that we do have that person. We do. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let me read a few verses to you. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You get that? 
to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's the gospel right there, right? God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and be raised from the dead on the third day so that you, by placing your faith and trust in him, could have forgiveness of sins by the shedding of his blood. And he has made us then, if you do that, and we've talked about this for the last two weeks, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. In some of his last recorded words in the Scripture, Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord and head of the church, personally assessed seven first-century churches as to their spiritual health. Look at verse 12 again now. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, wouldn't you? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, it seems to me that any series on the church must include an exploration of what Jesus had to say about the church, right? Hence the title of this series, What Would Jesus Say to the Church Today, as I continue to research this huge topic, I have discovered that everyone and his brother has an opinion and a list of what they consider to be the benchmarks of a great church. Go ahead and read the books. Read the articles. You will not exhaust them. And you know what I've found in all of that so far? Every list is different. Every list is different. 
Granted, there are overlaps, but depending on who you're reading, you will inevitably come up with a set of characteristics skewed toward their own particular bent, whoever's writing. Some emphasize worship. Others highlight the use of spiritual gifts. Others zero in on prayer being the predominant thing. Still others weigh heavily on fellowship and community building. Preaching and teaching usually top the list, and most view missions and outreach as clearly essential to being a great church. Are these lists all wrong? No. Are these lists exhaustive? Absolutely not. And even when I get to the end of this series, I will have only begun to scratch the surface on the things that might identify a church as the thing God had in mind. But as I address you today, I realize that the process of becoming the church that wins heaven's applause is a journey that will last until the day the Lord returns. It will. And one day, the church, though now quite imperfect, will be presented by Christ to himself as spotless, as stainless, and without flaws of any kind. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Amen? And we have this word out of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And also in chapter 3, Paul says, And so I am sure that God who began this good work in you will carry it out until it is finished on the day of Jesus Christ. We, however, are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. That's what's happening now. And I've also realized that ultimately, whether or not what we are doing here is really church, guess what? It's not to be determined by you or what you and I think. It's determined by what Jesus knows. I have known people who thought that they were very, very healthy. But deep inside their bodies, things were happening. Things were taking place that they couldn't see and they couldn't even feel. Their heart was giving way, or cancer had begun to destroy vital organs, or they possessed an incurable virus which would eventually strip them of their ability to fight off disease. You see, only Jesus can see what's happening deep inside the heart of his body. Only Jesus. I can't tell you what's happening in the heart of this church. Only Jesus can do that. goes back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. Who John saw? His eyes were like a flame of fire. He looks deep inside of each one of us and the church as a whole. In every one of these seven letters, Christ communicates in no uncertain terms to us that he knows everything about the church. He knows everything about his church. Just look at Revelation for a moment with me. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Okay? Now look at verse 2. 
I know your deeds. I know. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna write, verse 9, I know. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, verse 13, I know. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, verse 19. Say it. I know. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, verse 2. Oh, uh, later on in verse 1. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know. I know. Chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, verse 8, I know your deeds. Chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, Verse 15, I know. I know your deeds. Is there anything Jesus doesn't know? Jesus says, I know. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. He knows. You see, strictly speaking, in evaluating ours or any church, the primary issue is not what people think, but what Christ knows. The health of the church is ultimately determined by the head of the church. Jesus' counsel to the seven churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 here should carry significant weight to us and to every church that is concerned about its life and health. It's interesting to me that this portion of Scripture is largely neglected when discussing the ideals of a biblically functioning church. Usually the first place we run to is where? Somebody want to take a guess? When you think about a healthy church and what we need to glean from what the Bible says about a healthy church, where do people go? Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2. Or we turn to the letters of Paul or other sections of the New Testament. Yet in these two chapters of John's writings, we find the most penetrating and comprehensive revelation of how Christ evaluates the local church. That is why I'm working my way backwards in this series. Backwards. From maturity to infancy. From the bride to the baby. From the wedding supper to the birthing room. See, we began in Hebrews, right? Looking at what the church is in its mature state in heaven. And now we're going to take a look backward toward how it began and continues here on earth. But we must take care not to glamorize what was happening in the early days of the church. Consider the following article that I recently read by Eric Davis. He said, you probably heard it many times, we just need to get back to the days of the early church. Have you said that before? I've said it. Things would be so much better in contemporary Christianity if we were more like the early church. While there were some great things happening then, I'm not so sure that I'm eager to get back to the early church days. They too had their problems. Can you say Colosseum? Here are a few reasons why we might put the brakes on glamorizing the early church. 
Here's a half dozen reasons why, and there are plenty more. Well, let me just kind of spot you some here according to this article. Number one, you were probably a slave. One-third of the Roman Empire's population was made up of slaves, and many of those slaves became Christians. So as a Christian, you could not come and go as you please. You can't grab your Starbucks in quiet time whenever you wish. Go to the singles group when convenient. No, as a slave, the individual was another person's property and subject to their master's will. That's a different situation than many Western Christians find themselves in today, isn't it? thus making the early church days potentially challenging, to say the least. Number two, think about this. Church facilities and gatherings would not suit you today. In the early church, one could not roll up to gathering in an air-conditioned vehicle, walk into an air-conditioned building, and we don't have that anyway, some do, and stop by the coffee bar for one's favorite morning pick-me-up at a pastry. Also absent were epic video displays, dazzling drama performances, and explosive boredom-free youth programs. Gatherings would have been dull and tedious to many of us. They were filled with Scripture reading, biblical teaching, exhortation and prayer, with no glittering audio-visual stimuli. Sad, isn't it, that I'm even saying these words and reading these words? Services were often held at inconvenient early times in in uncomfortable locations. You typically lost your friends and your acquaintances if you came to those services, and you could get thrown in jail for just being seen gathering with these despised people in society. Number three, almost no one Say it. No one possessed a Bible or theological resources at their fingertips. No one possessed a complete Bible during the first century, and it's likely that complete Bible was not even in anyone's possession until sometime in the second century at the very earliest. But even then, the printing press was about 13 centuries away from being invented. Thus, the vast majority of believers for centuries did not own a personal copy of God's Word. Today, guess what you can do? You can sit there in your seat with a Bible on your lap and a tablet on your other lap, and you can look up everything I'm saying online. You've got all theological resources and writings from the last 2,000 years, basically, available at your fingertips on a single device that weighs about as much as one small book. Here it is, right here. It's all there, whole library. You see, the scarcity of Bibles and theological resources made the early church a very, very difficult time to be alive and to be part of the church. And so knowing all of that, in light of that, number four, theological error existed in abundance during the early church. Errors flourished. From the New Testament letters, we can discern that error existed in virtually every church to whom the apostles wrote. 
Some of the theological errors during the early church days might seem bizarre to the apparent theological simplicity on the issue now, but without the resources we have today, they are understandable. The interesting thing to me is that today, theological error still abounds. And it's far less excusable because these days almost everybody has a Bible and access to sound theological resources. Then they did not. Today, the essential doctrines of the faith have been defined and they've been tested over time. Then they hadn't been. Number five, people struggled to love each other. That's no different than it is today. Often the early church gets fairy-tailed into a first-century happily ever after syndrome, right? While some exemplary love, uh, love and one-anothering occurred in the early church, and there's examples of that in the Scriptures, guess what there else, else is? There are plenty of examples of squabbles, conflicts. They were no less present. The Hebrews grappled with the Hellenists. Paul and Barnabas had their tiff. The Corinthian church scorned their apostle pastor. They had multifaceted civil wars. Euodia and Syntyche were chucking pews at each other, so much so that their names go down in the book of Philippians for centuries in spiritual history. What are they known for in theological history? They're fighting with each other. The Galatian church considered Paul their enemy. Timothy likely had some sort of feminist uprising in Ephesus along with Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander dogging their steps. Titus was up against lazy, godless gluttons and stiff-necked religious people who needed severe rebuke in Titus chapter 1. Philemon and Onesimus needed mediation with each other. James dealt with local church prejudice and favoritism, and even Paul and Peter scuffled just as in churches today. The church of the early times had sin, making love very difficult at times for one another. And if there's nothing else that would deter you from glamorizing the early church, this one ought to slam dunk it. God disciplined people by death. That's a scary thought, isn't it? On at least two occasions in the Scripture, it records instances where professing Christians died due to sin against God. I wonder if you can name them. Ananias and Sapphira is one. Can you think of another one? It's right in the context of what Henry just led us through. Communion. Paul talked about the fact that they were taking communion wrong and they were literally dishonoring God in the communion service and that's why some of them were sick and some slept, meaning died. You see, God brought physical judgment on a congregation, at least in the early church times in some instances, God's message was very clear. God is still a holy God to be revered in these exciting new covenant days. Now, don't get me wrong. God was building 
busy building and blessing his church, his cherished church in her infancy days. Great and essential things happen for which we praise God. However, it will not do to romanticize that into something that is inherently superior to a church whom God has been shaping for 20-plus centuries. God is still building his church. Do not say, Ecclesiastes 7 says, verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Friends, it may be the infant church of Acts that may often seem fresh and new and exciting to us, but in reality, it's the adolescent and midlife churches of Revelation that really teach us how to deal with the issues of our day. Everything seems great when it's new, but what happens after the years start to set in and the newness wears off? What happens when the metal is tested? Next week, as we begin to individually look at the historical first century churches in Asia Minor, My goal is not to present an exhaustive exegetical study of each one of them, but rather my purpose will be to highlight a handful of very spiritual and practical truths that will help us focus on Jesus' evaluation of things, not only as it relates to those churches in particular, but more importantly to our church so that we can consider our ways and make the necessary changes. In the 14th chapter of Solomon's compilation of Proverbs, He distinctly reminds us of this in Proverbs 14, verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Author Mark Buchanan writes these words. He says, the wisdom of the wise is to give thought to their ways. They think about where they're going. But the folly of fools is deception. They keep lying to themselves. Wise people ask, does the path that I'm walking on lead to a place that I really want to go? If I keep heading this way, will I like where I arrive at the end of it? You see, fools don't ask that question. They just keep on making excuses for themselves, justifying and blaming all the way to nowhere. They dupe themselves right to the grave. They never change their minds. So God tells us to consider our ways. That's wise advice concerning the way we view and the way we do church together. And let me make it even more specific. Consider your thoughts and attitudes the pattern of them, their shape and their drift? Are they leading us to where we want to go as a church? Plot their trajectory. Will they land us in a place that we care to live? If not, then we need to change our minds and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen? So I want to take a moment right now and begin with David's prayer. Search me, O God, And know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you to search us and reveal one habitual thought, one attitude of our hearts that is misleading us about what church should be. And teach us, Lord, how 
we might be playing into it. And whatever those things are, Holy Spirit, I pray that Lord God and Jesus use this series, these words in the book of Revelation to change our minds. And as David closed his prayer, and lead us in the everlasting way. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.